What I would like to talk about this evening <coughs> is original blessing. When we think of the spiritual life and the spiritual path, I think that we often look upon it as either a flight from somewhere and from something or as a flight to somewhere and to something. We often see spiritual life and spiritual practice as being a kind of stepping stone to somewhere loftier, somewhere higher, somewhere perhaps more enlightened than where we are now in our lives and in our experience. And if you spend a little time kicking around spiritual circles, it's fairly hard to avoid constructing these rather glorious images of the spiritual destination we're fleeing towards or traveling towards. We may have images of a life in this life or if worse comes to us in the life hereafter where there'll be a kind of greatness of joy and wonder. We may have images of entering into a destination, a spiritual destination where there'll be a cessation of pain and struggle and a kind of blissful enlightenment as a result of that end, where there's really an abundance, if not an overabundance, of harmony, of wisdom, and of compassion. If we have those marvelous images at all, we probably also realize that we do at the same time rather construct images of the kind of person we will be, of who we will be as we enter into this wonderful heavenly realm that awaits us after all our practice and effort and energy. Certainly, we often see ourselves as having to become worthy worthy of joy, worthy of happiness, worthy of peace, worthy of enlightenment. Often we feel in order to become worthy or in order to have access to this marvelous spiritual destination, we certainly will have changed. We will have changed ourselves as a result of our spiritual practice. We will perhaps have become a person who is overflowing with wisdom and compassion, who's filled with love and understanding, who's a kind of pure sunbeam, spiritual sunbeam, where never a thought of anger, never a trace of resentment, where never a trace of grasping or pride or greed will in any way mark the spiritual paragon we will have become. 
we frequently have a model of spiritual excellence. The other side, of course, of this flight to excellence is the flight from. The flight from the impure, the inferior, and the imperfect. It seems that those two, the flight to somewhere to becoming someone, is always accompanied by the belief that we must flee from somewhere and from someone. And that place that we are fleeing from is most often where we are now. And that person we are fleeing from is who we are now. To arrive at spiritual excellence, it does seem that transcendence is the key. It's not difficult for us to, a to name the obstacles that hinder our arrival at the destination we seek for. When we look inwardly, when we look at our lives, at our minds and at our hearts, we're not always pleased with what we find. We don't often feel very pleased when we look within ourselves and we see greed or we see anger. We often do filled, feel filled with despair when we encounter within ourselves seemingly end bottomless depths of confusion. We often feel saddened when we become aware of the seemingly unbridgeable chasm that seems to exist between ourselves and others, between ourselves and the world around us. And at times we feel horrified by the number of judgments and resentments we seem capable of carrying. It is not difficult for us to conclude that we must change, that we must alter ourselves, that these are our imperfections, our impurities that hinder our arrival at where we want to be, that these are the imperfections and the impurities that we, flee from, that we must flee from, that we have to alter, that we have to modify in order to be worthy in order to be spiritual, even in order to be acceptable, in order to be the kind of person that we think we should be. We are not only, I think, in this way of seeing, fleeing from who we are, we are also have the thought of fleeing from where we are. We are aware, our awareness makes it so that we are tuned into the world around us. And we are often grieved by what we see, often grieved by the oppression and the injustice that's a diet, the daily diet of so many people. We are often saddened and enraged by the degree of conflict and hatred that scars our world and saddened by the chaos and the seemingly insoluble conflict and division that seems to permeate so many levels of our world. Again, it's easy for us to conclude that the sacred must lie somewhere else, 
that it must lie somewhere separate and somewhere apart from where we are now. And when we look at the world around us, we go through so many different reactions. We often feel aversion. We often feel fear. We often believe that there is very little in all of this chaos that is worth feeling any sense of reverence for, that we must look somewhere else. That we must look somewhere else, somewhere else apart from now and apart from where we are, for the peace and the wisdom that we seek for. And it seems logical <coughs> and understandable to believe that this is what the spiritual life is all about. This flight from where we are, from the world that we're in, and this flight towards, this movement towards somewhere else. We also have a whole wealth of religious teaching and religious history that supports this view. A wealth of religious history that runs through every single tradition. In Buddhism, we, the world is spoken of. It's a place of delusion, a place of emptiness that there can be no happiness found in this world. And the rapper spoke about how everything in this world, every pursuit, can only lead to one inevitable and unavoidable end, which is suffering. That everything we build will be dissolved, that everything we create will die, that everything we form will also come to an end great Christian mystic, said that we must look upon everything that was sweet to us, that it all must become bitter to us if we are to find God. Alice Bailey said that the world of truth lies beyond the world of feeling altogether. That it is only when we transcend the world of feeling that we can find anything that is real fairly punchy statements. Only a few samples. It could go on endlessly. How great teachers and great traditions tell us that we must go elsewhere, that we must be somewhere else. And I wonder what your reaction is when you hear those statements, when you hear that everything you create is doomed to disillusion, that there is nothing worthwhile forming any bonds within this world because it will all sink into nothingness. I wonder what your gut reaction is. For many of us, our gut reaction is saying, no, they're all wrong. It's got to be wrong. That's not the way it is. You know, that's all a kind of uh, spiritual construct. It's all a view of monastics. It's all a view of Ascetics, it's all a view of basically spiritually constipated people who have an incapacity to relate to the world around them. <laughs> so they've got these grandiose concepts about the world because they're basically incapable of being in it. 
we often have those gut reactions, and yet often following those gut reactions, because this is so much a part of our history, comes another kind of concern, well, what if they're right? What really if they're right? Because look at our experience. A lot of our experiences tell us, you know, things don't last, that there's not a lot that we can rely on, that at times a lot of happiness just ends up in pain, and a lot of bonds end up in suffering, and a lot of relationships sure end up in a lot of grief. And what if they're actually right? What if we really do need to go beyond all of this? What if we really do so radically need to change ourselves that we have absolutely no wish any longer to relate, to be partners, to be parents, to, <coughs> to work? And we start thinking that maybe at times the solution is that we should all go find our own personal little cave somewhere spend the rest of our lives sitting on a rock and gazing into nothingness, and perhaps that's where we're going to find it. Underlying many of those statements, and you can't avoid those statements, you read any, any spiritual scripture, you read any religious text, you're going to find those statements again and again and again. And underlying those statements is one single message, an ex exhortation. Really, what we are being asked to do, or the message we receive, is it is necessary for us to go beyond. You know, there's a great kind of Buddhist chant that, you know, in many places in the world you end sittings with. It's gate, gate, parasama gate. You know, you've gone, gone, gone beyond. And that is the message of what is necessary for us to do, to transcend, to go beyond who we are and to go beyond where we are. And it seems that underlying those messages we're being told that it is necessary to separate ourselves and to disconnect ourselves, that this is what is required of us. If we are going to know a freedom, freedom in our lives, if we're going to know an end to pain and division, if we're going to come to understand what is really true and real. These messages and our own perceptions tell us that heaven is indeed separate from earth, that the spiritual is indeed separate from the worldly, that the sacred is very separate from the mundane. We make those separations ourselves. How do we view the wandering mind? How do we view the feeling of anger? How do we view the judging mind? How do we view the mind that's felt? How do we view the feelings that we consider to be unspiritual, unacceptable? How often do we not view them as what we must go beyond, what we must transcend, what we must learn to separate ourselves from in order to become spiritual, worthy, and lovable? 
our own separations and messages we hear of separation does make it seem that the spiritual path is a stepping stone, a flight to somewhere else, a flight to become someone else. To me, this flight and this way of seeing is the greatest spiritual error, the greatest spiritual tragedy we can ever engage in. It is a tragedy when we make these separations unconsciously. It is even a greater tragedy when we make these separations and distinctions consciously. At the risk of being heretical and contradicting these rather august spiritual personages, I feel that what is being deep what is being delivered to us very deeply is a message of original sin. And what is not being delivered to us in any way is a message of original blessing. When we are not acutely and directly connected with the teaching and the message of original blessing. Our spiritual lives, every aspect of our lives, our inner relationships, our outer relationships are constantly and endlessly going to be shadowed by fragmentation, by pain and by division. This is what I feel we sentence ourselves to as long as we are exiled from trusting in the teaching of original blessing. As long as we are burdened by the message of original sin, rather than traveling lightly with the message of original blessing, feel we will endlessly perpetuate the sorrow and the division and the pain that we try to flee from. We don't have to look very far to receive the message of original blessing. It just seems that we are more prone to believe in the message of original sin. Throughout all time and throughout all traditions, throughout the past and throughout the present, every great mystic, every great teaching, every great spiritual traveler has shared in one fundamental awakening and discovery and revelation. This understanding and this revelation and this awakening differs in its words, but it does not differ in its understanding and its wisdom, no matter what tradition it is found within. The words that are used are, are different. Words such as suchness, words such as truth, words such as reality, words such as God are used. But the words are very secondary. The message is the same and the message that we receive from every great spiritual traveler and tradition is that we are indeed singularly blessed. That there is available to us an infinite and an unconditioned reality that underlies all difference in appearance, that there is an undivisible and unshakable oneness that underlies all separation, and that there is nothing that is separate and apart from this truth. There is nothing that can ever be truly disconnected from it. 
It is the essence of our being. It is the suchness of all things. And that to awaken to this reality, to awaken to this understanding, is to awaken to profound liberation and profound joy. It's an awakening that's not really dependent upon anything. It cannot be gained and it cannot be possessed. And it doesn't lie in any separate time or dimension apart from now. This awakening is never spoken of as a depressing experience. It's never spoken of in negative terms. You know, people don't talk about what a drag it is to be liberated. You know, or what, you know, how much suffering there is, you know, in being enlightened. It's a whole different vocabulary. The words that I use are love, our joy, our, our wonder, our mystery, our beauty. All these words and descriptions that I attempt to use to, to describe something which is beyond definition but which is not beyond accessibility. And that is the message that it is not beyond accessibility. And this awakening is spoken of as a revolution in consciousness that will radically change our lives, radically change our way of seeing and our way of being in this world. And it does seem that great compassion, great love, great generosity, great service, great patience and forgiveness all truly have their home in this understanding of oneness and interconnectedness. And it is imminent. It is imminent. It doesn't lie in some separate dimension or place. The Buddha spoke about the suchness in the stones of the river. Great mystics speak about the fullness of joy being seen, the fullness of God in everything and everywhere. Great mystics speak, uh, teachers and spiritual travelers speak about the revelation of emptiness and the truth that is revealed in emptiness. We hear that this awakening is imminent. It is the core of all spiritual life. It's not a product of striving. It's not a product of struggling. It's not a product of transcending anything at all. And it's not a product of having learned how to perfect ourselves. Rather, it's much more a question of learning how to open our eyes to what is already with us. How to live with our eyes open so that what is true will be revealed to us. It is a message of potential. It is a message of possibility. It speaks of the greatness of human possibilities. And one thing is sure, it is not the territory of only saintly or only special people. No one's born a saint. No one is born holy. It's not just a Gandhi who can practice great forgiveness. It's not just a Dalai Lama who can practice great compassion. It's not just a Siddhartha who can be awakened. Each one of us, blessed with the capacity to be awake, the capacity to be aware, the capacity to open and to listen and to learn, this is part 
of her original blessing. That all of us are blessed with our capacity to deepen in wisdom and to deepen in compassion. The words that speak of original blessing, this is what calls us to the spiritual path. The words that speak of our possibilities and our potential, this is what draws us to the spiritual life, that leads us to make changes in our lives, that leads us to have the courage to explore the depths of our consciousness. We are not drawn to the spiritual life by words of censure and judgment that tell us that we're hopeless and unworthy and imperfect. We're not drawn to this life so that we can hear from someone else, so that we can further hear from ourselves how utterly useless and unacceptable we may be. We're not drawn to the spiritual life by a vision which seems to demand disconnection and, and divorce. I don't feel we're drawn to a practice of asceticism so that we can learn to subdue ourselves no matter how much future retired enlightenment is going to result from learning how to overcome and subdue ourselves. Rather, I feel we are drawn to a vision of oneness. This is what draws us, this is what echoes in our hearts to a vision of oneness that embraces all life. Surely we are drawn to a vision of awakening that will reveal to us how we can heal our world, how we can heal ourselves, how we can know oneness through love and through compassion. Surely we are drawn, drawn to a vision of awakening in which there's an end of chaos and division and distinctions that we re will reveal to us a path that will reveal to us how to discover harmony amidst chaos, how to discover compassion amidst hatred, how to discover wisdom amidst confusion, and how to discover oneness amidst division. This is the teaching of original blessing that most of us, all of us, respond to deeply. On one level, we know that. We know it intuitively. We know that all this business of overcoming and subduing and transcending, that much of it is nonsense. And yet we can't help but wonder why it is then, in our spiritual paths and in our lives, we end up so many times getting caught up in all this striving and all this struggling. We can't help but wonder when we know so much intuitively why we end up in all these cycles of judgment and beliefs in our imperfections and our impurities. Why we end up getting so caught up in our beliefs and our beliefs in our need to transcend this and transcend that and get over this and get over that. Why on earth do we become so identified when we know intuitively? But what we need to do is to open our eyes to the truth of what is, that it is here with us already. Why do we become so identified and then go through so much pain with our minds and our thoughts and our feelings? Why is it even that we are so quick to believe in our unworthiness and our need to become perfect? In fact, we might end up wondering 
quite honestly why it is that if we are really so singularly blessed as we are told so often and hear so often why if we are so singularly blessed why is it that we often feel so darn miserable why is it that we often feel so exiled from this real connection with original blessing there are many reasons outer reasons and inner reasons we can't ignore the weight and the authority of our religious and social conditioning that's made such a deep impression upon us these various messages that we've received through our lives that tell us about our imperfection even if we're not necessarily told overtly about our imperfections often just by being presented with a model of perfection we come to believe in our imperfections we can't ignore the impression that's been made upon us by the expectations we've been exposed to from the moment of our birth that tell us that we're often just not quite good enough didn't just do it quite right and again even if we're not overtly told that sometimes we are just presented so often with the models of what is right what is acceptable what it is to be lovable what it is to be spiritual that we end up carrying with us throughout our lives an impaired sense of vision a wounded sense of vision of who we are a vision of incompleteness that we've come to believe in deeply and that belief in incompleteness is what leads us so endlessly into so much struggling and so much striving that leads us so often to focus elsewhere to look somewhere else apart from now for who we want to be that lead us into these endless attempts to modify and improve and alter ourselves it's important to see the effects of struggling it's important to see the effects of striving how much busyness we engage in through it how much it leads us to denial self abuse and judgment and how much all that struggling and striving suffocates spaciousness how much the values and the standards and the expectations that we impose upon ourselves in our attempts to become lovable and spiritual and worthy lead us away from where we need to be there's a certain willingness to our values and expectations and struggles to name and to label aspects of our own being as obstacles as opponents and as enemies you may have found yourself doing that here the moment that you have labeled something as being an obstacle an opponent or an enemy you enter into struggle the struggle engaged in trying to overcome our opponents and trying to transcend them why do we do that because we have separated heaven from earth because we have separated the spiritual from the worldly 
because we have separated the worthy from the unworthy and so we are consumed in the flight towards something and the flight from something. The result is fragmentation. The result is inner division. The result is to be exiled from original blessing and instead to become entangled in the knots of original sin. It is these beliefs and these divisions we create inwardly that lead us to make war and battle within ourselves, that lead us to make divisions in our lives. The history of this, these struggles is not so difficult for us to trace. It's even really not so difficult to see these struggles happen on a moment-to-moment level. What is far more difficult for us is to learn how to step out of this struggle. Really how to let go deeply and fully and completely of the beliefs that propel and compel us into so much struggle and striving. Often even the attempt to let go seems to end up even in more struggle. We see I need to let go of something. We try to let go of it. We can't let go of it. We judge ourselves for not being able to let go of it. The judgment becomes something else to overcome. So we try to not judge our judgments and then we end up struggling with our judgments. Even the attempt to let go seems to just lead directly into struggle, into more denial. And yet at the same time we can be afraid of giving up the struggle because what would we do if we weren't struggling? We might be afraid that we'll just kind of be submerged by these negative monsters that are lurking within us. Or we might be afraid that we will just kind of sink into the quicksand of passivity. Or that we will become a spiritual failure, doomed forever to some endless wandering in samsara. Even if our struggles are uncomfortable, at least we know them. At least they are familiar to us. I would not suggest that it's so wise to try and let go of struggling. To try and let go of judgments. To try and let go of striving. I, I think really we need to consider another way of seeing really all together. I don't have any magical or any simple solutions to offer. If you're waiting in anticipation for some grand prescription, <laughs> you're going to be sadly disappointed. What is necessary for us to see that our struggles rest upon our beliefs, upon nothing else? That is really important for us to see that our struggles and our divisions rest upon our beliefs and our beliefs shape our reality. For many years, people didn't go very far in a boat because they were afraid they were going to fall off the edge. They never knew they could go further until that first person went and didn't fall off the edge. 
Our beliefs really do shape our reality and our struggles really do rest upon our beliefs. Instead, I decide to suggest that instead of dwelling so lengthily and so strongly upon our beliefs as they arise, and we know our beliefs because we know our descriptions. You don't have to search to find your beliefs. Every phrase that you began today that says, I am so-and-so. I am angry, I am sad, I am depressed, I'm a failure, I'm inadequate. We don't have to look far to find our beliefs, probably the last 15 minutes or so. Instead of dwelling so lengthily upon our beliefs, let's just consider whether it is possible to use the power of that energy instead to reflect upon vision. Just to reflect upon vision. It is possible for each one of us to be free. It is possible for each one of us to be awake. It is possible for each one of us to live with a fullness of compassion and wisdom. It is possible for us to live in an authentic and genuine way. It is possible for each one of us to know real depths of peace and serenity within ourselves. This is not fantasy. This is not imagination. These are our possibilities. These, this is our potential. This is the vision that we need to learn to trust in. And we need to learn to reflect upon. That we can actually say that to ourselves and we don't just hear an empty echo. That we hear some glimmer of response and trust that this is indeed possible. And where and when? Not later. Not some far distant point in the future. Not as some reward for having suffered enough. Not a some kind of distant arrival place that we'll arrive off after we've gone through our overcoming and transcending, but where we are, within who we are, within the moment that we're in. Can we begin to open in any way to the possibility that the images and the judgments and the expectations that have plagued us they are not really true descriptions of who we are. Can we begin to open to that possibility in any way whatsoever? To reflect upon vision, it doesn't mean necessarily that all those images and all those judgments and all those expectations are going to immediately disappear. But perhaps if we can begin to begin with, connect with some level of trust, some level of vision, we will not believe in them so strongly. We will not be so seduced by them, nor struggle really so long with them. As we begin to reflect upon vision and upon possibility, that is the beginning of trust. That is the beginning of wisdom. It allows us to begin to see the emptiness of this flow of concepts and beliefs that has seemed so overwhelming. 
And they're not things to be overcome and transcended, but those very concepts and beliefs, they are our windows and our doorways to understanding, to learn how to see, how to welcome, how to embrace with open heart of compassion and wisdom, just what is. They are the windows and the doorways to understanding, the very things that we've tried to overcome or get rid of. To learn just how to embrace them. And then what are they any longer? They're not opponents. They're not enemies. They're not adversaries. They are vehicles to understanding, to depth, to openness. When we stop struggling, there comes a great silence and a great peace and a great calmness that's not separate from movement. And a great peace is not separate from challenge. And a kindness and open-heartedness is not separate from difficulty, but it is a way of being with challenge, with movement, with difficulty. We begin to understand that suffering and that pain are not stepping stones to enlightenment. And that transcendence is not really a stepping stone to happiness. And that even meditation, it's not a stepping stone to some other destination. All that our practice is, is a means of bringing us closer to where we are and to who we are. It's a means to understanding what it is to be awake within who we are in the moment that we're in. May all beings live with wisdom. May all beings live with compassion. May all beings awaken. If we have just a couple of minutes quietly together and then I'll have a break.
This evening, what I'd like to talk about is the power of models. Not the models who walk down catwalks, not the models we construct out of Pleistocene, but the models we construct in our minds. Probably the easiest way for any of us to do a retreat would be a way that offered a set of very clearly defined expectations, goals, and signposts of progress. If we were to post on the notice board a list of standards, this would probably be greeted with a certain sigh of relief. You know that on day one, we expect you to be able to observe two breaths in a row with body pain. On day two, we expect four breaths in a row. On day three, we expect six breaths in a row and no body pain. On day five, we expect ten breaths in a row and long periods of peace. And on day seven, if you managed all this, you would get some kind of certificate that said you were a concentrated yogi or an enlightened yogi, or filled with loving-kindness. These guidelines, what they would do for us, is that they would offer to us a certain amount of reassurance that we were doing it right, that there was a way of making progress that we were producing and that perhaps we were achieving and from those guidelines, probably what we would gain is a certain comfort. We would feel also a certain sense of identity. And we would gain a certain amount of security from that process. There are many parallels for that process and that way of defining ourselves in our lives. We love, in many ways, to have yardsticks to measure ourselves by. Yardsticks that can define who we are and yardsticks that can define how we are doing. Now, in a way, it may seem very sad that really none of this is offered. We may keep going back to the notice board, seeking for some kind of enlightenment, only it's not forthcoming. It's only the same old things that go up that tell us what to do, but it, they don't tell us how we are doing. This most vital piece of information seems somehow to be shrouded in mystery. We may come to the talks in the evening and listen eagerly waiting for some kind of standards, some clearly defined expectations to be dispensed about this path that we're traveling on. Again, we may not feel very enlightened. We may go to group meetings again, looking for some sort of signs of praise or approval. And when they're not forthcoming, we may even find ourselves hoping at least for some sort of sign of disapproval or failure. Because at least then we would have something tangible, something concrete to work with, 
even if we were failing, we would have some idea of how to improve ourselves, something to work on. It all seems very sadly lacking. In this path, strangely enough, there doesn't seem to be a way that is really right. Nor does there seem to be a way of doing this practice that is really wrong. Instead, we keep getting the same messages over and over and over again. Just open to the present. Just be awake. Just be present with what is. Just see the emptiness of what you're holding on to. And often it seems like there's really very little new or original. In fact, many of you could probably feel that you could sit up here and give this talk yourself (laughs) and be just as enlightening for everybody else. And quite possibly, or quite likely, you could. We may experience in this emptiness a kind of frantic need to be told something definite, to be told something concrete. We may even find that we are experiencing a certain number of withdrawal symptoms. We may find ourselves experiencing anxiety and agitation. We may find ourselves floundering and feeling insecure, desperately needing some kind of answers. And when these feelings come up, we often also do flee from them in very predictable ways. When there doesn't seem to be any external reassurance coming, when there doesn't seem to really be any praise or any blame offered to us from others, then instead our inner sensor may begin to work overtime setting up our own agenda of expectations, setting up our own agenda of goals and signposts, and our own signs of success and failure. Well, yesterday I managed to be with three breaths. The least I should be able to do today is to be with four breaths. Yesterday I had two minutes of peace, And perhaps today, I should expect three minutes of peace. And we often, of course, hang very tightly on to our own signposts. When we don't feel they're being met, we have the inner sensor that meets that sense of failure with all kinds of judgment and, and blame. Sometimes in this vacuum of definition, we find ourselves also reacting with anger, a certain amount of annoyance. Well, if these teachers don't know how I'm doing, they obviously don't know what they're doing. What we are actually experiencing in all this agitation that arises, in all this restlessness that arises, In all the insecurity that arises, what we are actually experiencing is what happens to us in the absence of models. And the effect that the absence of models has upon us. What we are experiencing is what happens to us in the absence of expectations and goals 
and we experience how much we might rely upon signposts and goals for our own sense of self-definition, for our own sense of safety and security. What we are often experiencing in those feelings of agitation, of insecurity, is the strain and sometimes the tension that is involved in undertaking an authentic inner journey. We're experiencing what happens to us when we begin to see through our own eyes rather than through the eyes of others. We begin to experience what happens to us and what we experience as we begin to see ourselves in the moment without images and without models, without goals and without signposts. We are experiencing what happens when we begin to discard outer authority, the authority of other people's standards, the other people's values and expectations. As we begin to look inwardly to the authority of our own voice, to the authority of our own wisdom and the authority of our own experience. Clearly, on a very deep level, we yearn for happiness, for peace, for wisdom and for freedom. But our first steps on that journey and our first encounters with freedom can be terrifying. We can experience that encounter as a kind of loss. It would be so much easier if we had a very well-traveled path before us, a very clearly outlined map that we could all call upon, that told us who to become, who to be, and how to get there. Because inherent in that kind of map is, all, is a whole wealth of approval, of definition and identity which can be terribly important to us. No true path of freedom will offer that to us. No true path of freedom will offer us any kind of standard map that we are going to conform to. That can be terrifying because it seems as if we are left alone. And as we look inside ourselves, one of the greatest tragedies, of course, that we will ever experience in our lives is to look inside ourselves and doubt whether there is anyone there who is at all authentic. To look inside ourselves and really not know who it is that we are encountering. Initially, we may experience a sense of loss, but we have to ask ourselves what it is that we are losing, what it is that we feel to have lost. It is important to understand that loss 
Sometimes that loss is the loss of so much that has actually created boundaries, created conditioning, and created limitation in our lives. All of those standards, all of those identities, all of that holding on to goals and signposts <coughs> may be the very things that have created boundaries within ourselves, within our lives. But even the loss of limitation initially may be experienced as being painful because it seems to leave us in a kind of vacuum of nothingness. But I would ask you to remember that in leaving that behind, we're not being cast adrift. We're not being left to flounder or to sink or to be overwhelmed by anything. We're not being sentenced to a vacuum of negation. What we are being asked to do is to listen inwardly, to be awake, to be receptive, to the authentic vision of our own being that can emerge in that space and in that emptiness. We are asked to listen and to be awake to the wisdom and to the understanding <coughs> that will emerge more and more clearly. The wisdom and understanding that will dispel the murkiness of anxiety and fear and that wisdom and that vision, it will emerge. It is a certainty. In a world of uncertainty, it is a certainty. If we listen, if we are just receptive, if we are just awake within ourselves, that wisdom and that vision will emerge. I would ask you not in any way to suppress or to deny those questioning voices that arise again and again in a retreat that ask, us, ask of us, what am I doing here? Why am I doing this? What is the point of all this? Why should I be alone? There's all these nice people around. I'm sure they're absolutely wonderful. Why should I sit here in silence instead of hanging out and getting to know each other? Maybe a little dancing or a little chanting. Why should I sit here with these uncomfortable sensations when there's probably all kinds of ways, even here, where I could have fun? <laughs> I ask you, not, not, don't suppress those voices. Welcome them. Welcome them. Let those voices come. Because those voices are probably the most important voices you'll listen to here. Not mine, not Anna's, not anybody else's. They are the most important voices that you are going to listen to in this week together. Those voices speak to us of the first steps and sometimes the first faltering steps that we are taking towards freedom. Because it is those voices that will question all of our certainties. It's those voices that will question all of our standards and all of our standpoints. It's those voices that will question all of the definitions about ourselves, all the identities we have held on to throughout our lives. 
It's those voices that will question our fears and our insecurities and our anxieties. And those voices will bring us closer to wisdom. They will bring us closer to understanding. As we begin to discard the models and the expectations we have carried, that discarding is the beginning of opening to understanding, opening to our own authority, our own inner authority and our inner wisdom. On a retreat, as in many other times and places in our lives, we will go through times of confusion, times of insecurity and times of fear. Many of those feelings and many of those moments that we experience can be linked very directly to the power that models have for us. Models have played and continue to play a powerful and an influential role in our lives, in how we see ourselves, in how we see the world around us. Models have been with us from the moment of our birth, the moment that we could relate to others, and they continue to be important. We have models represented to us in people, people that we admire, we have people that we may despise. We have models of people that we want to emulate, that we want to become. And we have models of people that we want to avoid. We have models that have come to us from our friends, from parents, from teachers, from spiritual guides. We have models for almost everything. We have models of physical attractiveness, models of what it means to be successful, models of what it means to be intelligent, and what it models of what spiritual achievement is all about. It would be too extreme to say that we, or to suggest in any way, that we must dispense with and get rid of all models in our lives. Because many of the models we've been exposed to have had a powerful, inspiring effect upon us. Some of the models we've been exposed to, models in other people, touch us and move us. And they reveal to us really a profound sense of our own possibility. Sometimes we're inspired by the models of other people really to reach for horizons in our lives, to let go of limitation, and to begin to trust more deeply in our own potential. When we are in contact with a person who has lived a life of great sorrow and conflict, and who has found within themselves incredible depths of forgiveness and peace, that person and the model of that person reveals to us, perhaps, our own capacities for forgiveness and peace. If we meet a person who has discarded many limiting myths in their lives, 
and have learned to live with dignity and with integrity in the midst of adversity, that person inspires us. They awaken within us or can awaken with us a great sense of our own possibilities. If we meet someone who's been really suffocated by powerful, by oppressive forces in their life, and have learned to live with great courage, and have learned to live with great dignity, that person too, in a way that model can empower us. It can help us to look anew at our own possibilities, to look at our own lives. It can inspire us to trust more deeply, to question, even show us steps that we may take to bring about changes that are conducive to our own well-being. Those models may even create within ourselves expectations. Sometimes a sense of possibility is not far removed from expectation. But they're not negative, undermining, lethal expectations that are loaded with self-negation and self-denial. Rather, they are expectations that are connected with ourselves in this moment, that are in no way divorced from our present actuality, that offer us a sense of possibility and inspire us to take those steps towards it. Those models that inspire us and touch us, of course, they are only one side of the power of models. And we know there is another side. And they are the models that actually disempower us in our lives, that lead us into self-doubt and into suppression. They are the models that are imposed upon us, that we are exposed to, that we construct within ourselves, that demand perfection of us. To become, to be the perfect child, to learn to do everything right, to be good enough, to, to be the perfect partner, the perfect parent, to make the perfect and right appearance in our lives. And it seems for almost every step that we take in our lives, in front of us, a model may be leading us. It may be staring at us in the face that tells us what we should conform to and what we should become. What is the right body to have? What is the right personality to have? What is the right appearance to have? How often have we found in our, ourselves in our lives really wanting something, really longing for something, really striving for something, or really struggling to make changes, compelled by the power of a model that we feel we should emulate, that we feel we should conform to? How often do we find ourselves reaching for something because we want to shape ourselves into a particular mold? These models that we've absorbed and the models that we've constructed have been the foundation of a great deal of damage that we have done to ourselves. How many times and in what, how many different ways have we punished or abused our bodies in order to get them into the approved shape? 
How many times and in how many ways do we suppress particular feelings or particular emotions or particular thoughts because they don't conform to our model of what is lovable, of what is acceptable, of what is spiritual? How many times do we find ourselves striving to become something because we believe that we should? Sometimes our efforts are truly heroic. Would ask, how do we know the difference between making changes in our lives or making changes within ourselves because they enhance our well-being and freedom and happiness? How do we know the difference between that and making changes because we're driven by shoulds, by expectations, by the power of models that we want to meet up to. There is a difference. Certainly, the spiritual life doesn't mean sitting here waiting in anticipation for some lightning bolt of enlightenment. We're here to make changes. Who wants to leave here exactly the same as we came in? We're here because we're reaching for something, because we're yearning for something. We may do a number of misguided things in terms of reaching and looking in the wrong places, possibly. But certainly here, there is the desire for an inner revolution, for a revolution in consciousness that will bring about peace. If the changes that we bring about and the changes that we make are based upon that real seeking for greater depths of peace and happiness and freedom rather than denial, then that is what we will experience. We will know we are making changes based upon that because we will experience greater happiness and greater freedom and greater understanding. If we attempt to make changes because of the power of models, they will lead to self-negation, to feelings of failure. We come to know the difference. Sometimes we feel, you know, we are making changes because we really need something. We really need to become someone. And outwardly we can succeed. You know, we might have the flavor of the month shape. We might even make heroic, achieve heroic destinations of being the, the kind of superwoman that our culture is currently promoting. You know, a woman who produces well, who juggles everything well, the perfect partner, the perfect parent, the perfect worker, yet all the time inwardly totally disbelieves in their success. Inwardly is expecting failure that is never quite right, never quite good enough, and that inwardly is endlessly comparing and judging and watching and censoring and just waiting for weaknesses and for signs of failure to arise. These models that we construct that lead to denial, they are our tyrants. They are the greatest oppressors we will ever meet. Think that there is probably no greater power of oppression in, the, in our world than the power that our own models have over us. 
the models that we have placed upon a pedestal of who we should be and who we should become. Can we appreciate the gap that's always there? And can we appreciate the fear that lives in that gap? Can we appreciate the denial and the judgment that lives within that gap? And wonder whether that gap ever really needs to exist. It's important for us to understand that there isn't any model that has any inherent power. When we look at a picture on a billboard, it's just a picture on a billboard. When we find ourselves looking at another person's life and feeling that that is who we should be, it is just an image. It is just a picture of another person's life different than our own. Models only have the value and the power that we give to them. Models assume that power because there are various dynamics that take place within ourselves that we're not always conscious of. Why are models important to us? Why do they have that power? Why, why, what is at the root of this feeling of the need to become, of what I should be, how I should be? What do those models represent to us? They are symbols. These models of the perfect spiritual person, the, most, the, the perfect partner, the perfect personality, They represent to us many things. They represent to us their symbols of what we believe we don't have, of what we believe we should become. They represent to us their symbols of success, of approval, of security and happiness. Those are the qualities that we project onto our models. They represent what we believe we are lacking and what we can gain. They represent the qualities that we believe to be absent within ourselves and that we can possess. And it may be that we can possess them, but it may be too that we pay a very high price in this pursuit of becoming, in this pursuit of shoulds. The price that we pay is self-negation, it's self-sacrifice and it's self-denial. What models actually do to us is that they highlight, they bring into consciousness deeply held beliefs in our own lack of self-worth and our own inadequacy. That is actually what models do. Without these feelings of worthlessness, without any belief in, an, in, a, in inadequacy, models wouldn't have any power. But when these feelings are present, then we do invest models both with power and with authority. And we only ever do that when we are inhabiting an inner environment where we feel there to be little inner authority. That shortage, or that feeling of being lacking in inner authority, 
has created the power that models have for us and the effects upon us when we fail to conform to the models we've placed on a pedestal. And it seems in such a way, such an endless cycle. Throughout our lives we're imposed, we're exposed to models, at times they're imposed upon us. There are certain demands inherent in those models that we become someone, that we become perfect, we become loving, we become acceptable. We often feel we fail, and that failure feels creates feelings of inadequacy and worthlessness. Those feelings lead to self-negation. When we feel self-negation and self-denial, our tendency is to create yet further models of what we should be and what we should become. And every time we create yet another model, we start the whole cycle going again. And it seems endless. It seems at times that we're caught within a web where we feel more and more disempowered because we don't trust in who we are. Because we're not yet deeply connected with any profound trust in our own freedom, our own completeness, our own wholeness, our own wisdom. It's not hopeless. (laughs) It's not at all hopeless. Look at what we are doing now. Look at what we are doing now. It may seem, you know, like there's all kinds of markiness going on. And it may seem, you know, that we have so much to do in terms of wandering minds and breaths that don't go deep enough and the right feelings that don't come. But don't be deceived too much by that. Underneath that whole overlay of dynamics that's happening in the retreats, well, we're still here. We're still sitting. We're still walking. We're still listening. And just the very fact that we are here, and we are sitting, and we are walking, and we are listening, and it may seem that we are going nowhere, but all of the time, every time we sit, every time we walk, every time we connect with just a little bit of wakefulness, what we are doing is we are deepening in a sense of inner connection. We are deepening in a deeper way of trusting in our own being. We're deepening in confidence and we will be deepening in understanding. Don't be too deceived by the overlay of what seems like so many problems and so many difficulties. Underneath all of that, something very powerful is happening. And that's what we need to trust in. We don't need to solve all of these various things. We just need to be present, to listen, to walk, to sit. Awareness has its own power. I remember Anna once said to me when she was sitting a three-month course, someone left a note for her on the board that said, the whole universe applauds you. Isn't that heartening? Isn't that heartening to feel that as you sit and as you walk and as you listen, 
And even as you're lost in those wandering thoughts, the whole universe is applauding you. <laughs> Why? Because you are doing something really significant here. You are connecting with that significance of being awake, no matter how hard and how murky it may seem at times. So there's something very profound in it. Iris Murdoch once said that the freedom from fantasy is the beginning of human liberation. This is so true for us. We must be willing, actually, to very deeply and very fully banish all of the models and all of the images that disempower us. The good girl, quite frankly, is not very good for us. We must learn how to slay the dragon lady who stares at us from the billboards <laughs> and tells us who we should be and how we should look and who we should become. We must be willing to absolutely dismiss all the celluloid fantasies and images that are promoted through our lives that present us with these models of perfection, what do they have to do with being awake? What do any of them have to do with being awake at all? We don't need them. They're not benevolent to us. They're not friendly to us. And we must learn to practice a certain restraint of being aware of where we set up our own models, set up new models. We are the only ones who can let them go. No one else can do that for us. Every time you find yourself caught up in judgment, every time you find yourself caught up in in self-negation, in shoulds, in becoming, in rejection of what you're experiencing. Ask yourself what authority you are listening to. Ask yourself what authority you are listening to. Are you listening to the authority of wisdom and compassion? Or are you listening to the authority of habit in the past? to stop believing in these models and these myths. It's not so easy. It isn't so easy. But the only moment we can be awakened is the moment we're experiencing. The only moment that we can embrace is the moment that we're in. The only moment that we can truly listen to is the moment that we're actually present within. We don't need to be overly heroic in this quest. We need to be patient and we need to be courageous. Discarding these models as we begin to see their hold loosening, as we begin to let them go, is also discarding many of the guidelines and many of the standards that have previously defined our choices, our directions, our responses, our ways of seeing. It may be that we have to go through a certain anxiety and a certain agitation and feelings of loss. That's where we need to be steadfast. That's where we need to be courageous because much of that agitation is the beginning of letting go. 
if we can stay present with it. Much of that insecurity and much of that anxiety are really the first seeds and the first steps of letting go. If we can just stay present within us. Much is spoken of about disempowerment. And when we think of disempowerment, we usually think of it in a kind of negative light because that's often been our experience of it. That in different times, in different situations in our lives, we felt to be a victim. We felt to be disempowered by other people. What we are doing in meditation is actually learning to be very skillful at disempowerment, but not negative disempowerment. We are learning just by listening, just by clarity, just by wisdom, how to disempower the myths that bind us. How to disempower the limitations that have previously created boundaries in our lives. How to disempower the models that are based upon feelings of inadequacy or worthlessness. We don't disempower all of that by assuming great weapons, by going into it as some fantastic spiritual warrior. We don't need to do that. We don't actually need to do that. Our disempowerment happens through being awake, through understanding, through seeing clearly. This is when we begin to connect with genuine authority and genuine wisdom. The freedom that we seek for doesn't depend on making ourselves perfect. When we are not engaged in struggling and striving, what is left for us? All that is left is this moment and all that it offers to us. And that is what this moment does. It offers to us the capacity to learn. This moment simply offers to us the opportunity to see more clearly. It doesn't dictate to us. It doesn't command us. If we idolize no myths and no models of perfection, what would we do? Where would we go? We would just return to ourselves. We would just return to what we're actually experiencing, actually experience, actually seeing without struggle. We wouldn't sink into passivity. Would we, be, we would be remarkably present and remarkably still. Models can inspire us. They can return us to ourselves to learn how to honor and how to treasure and how to cherish our own capacity for wisdom and for understanding. We don't need those models. We have all that we need. We have everything that we need. We have the capacity to be awake. We have the capacity to be aware and to see. This is all that we need. It's all that we are asked to do, and it's all that we can do. May all beings live with clarity. May all beings live with wisdom. May all beings live with compassion.
have just a couple of minutes quietly together, please, and then we'll have a walk in. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.